Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. One of us comes to this conversation with a vision already in our own minds about what a good life is, because we've got dreams for our own future that we've been building and developing over the course of our lifetime. And throughout the years, we have also been inspired by people who were influential in our life, mentors and coaches and parents and teachers and so on and so on, who have all impacted our idea of what a good life is is, what a good person is, what a good career looks like, and what a good family could be. And so we come to this conversation with this unique perspective about what life would be like if it turned out just right. And most of us, if we think about it, could name a few people who seem to be enjoying the good life. Most of us could come up with a few names of some folks that we imagine, at least from the outside looking in, it seems like they've got things all going in the right direction. And the truth is that we are all constantly being fed a diet of information about the supposedly good and glamorous lives that other people are living, right? Think about with me for a second how we as a culture seem to be mesmerized by people that are living uncommon and apparently extravagant lives. Our society is fascinated by the likes of people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, and not simply because of the companies that they founded, but because of the riches that they've acquired and the choices that they've made about what to do with their money. And there are TikTok and Instagram personalities that have amassed millions and millions of fascinated followers, and all they do is just walk up to cars that are luxury cars and ask the driver, what do you do for a living? We want to know. We want to know about what it is that you're up to. We have this entire industry dedicated to entertainment news, and it's an incredible monstrosity of a machine. It just keeps us informed about the latest details of the personal lives of the actors and the musicians and the athletes, the people who have become household names for us, even though we've never met most of them. And even for some reason here in the U.S., our media has a fascination with maybe a disproportionate amount of focus is pointed at the various members of the British royal family and all of the happenings that are going on with them. And I don't mention all of those examples to pass judgment. I'm just trying to point out that culturally, we have a type. Culturally, we have a particular kind of life that fascinates us. A particular kind of life that captures our interest and it inspires us. I know I'm speaking in generalities here, but we as a society, we look to the celebrities, we look to the, the billionaires, we look to the power brokers, and we hold them up as the fortunate ones among us. The ones who have everything in their favor. And it's clear, most of the people in our society are convinced That's the kind of life that I want. 
That's the kind of life that I'm chasing. You're going to see evidence of this on Tuesday. On Tuesday night this week, there's going to be a lottery drawing for the Mega Millions Lottery. Some of you already knew about this. Some of you may have a ticket in your pocket. I don't know. The Mega Millions Lottery jackpot this Tuesday night is valued at over $1.1 billion. Some of you are going to buy a ticket after this service now. One news article I read said it's the fifth largest lottery jackpot in U.S. lottery history. And so you can bet, you already can assume right now, that Tuesday when you get home from work, if you turn on the evening news, you're going to see reports about the long lines of people who are standing in, in line at convenience stores all over the country waiting to buy a ticket for that lottery. And they didn't do those reports when the lottery jackpot was a measly $100 million. You know, like nobody stood in line. Why would you stand in line for a chance to win $100 million? I mean, small potatoes, right? They didn't do those reports when the lottery jackpot was that small, but something about that billion-dollar mark just changes things. It makes it feel different. It makes it apparently irresistible. And so this Tuesday, in the face of 305 million to one odds, and in the, against the direct advice of math teachers and financial advisors everywhere, Americans, millions of Americans, are going to stand in line and purchase lottery tickets hoping that they might just be fortunate, lucky enough to win. You see, there's this assumption that we are predisposed to live by, and the assumption goes, if you have enough money, you can buy your way to the good life. We are predisposed to, and we're constantly being bombarded with messages that tell us that this theory is true. This theory is that with enough money, you can buy enough. You can buy enough food. You can buy enough health care. You can buy enough housing. You can buy enough security. You can buy enough insurance. You can buy enough vacation. You can buy enough luxury items, not just to be comfortable, but more importantly, to be self-sufficient, to be self-reliant, which really is the ultimate goal in our culture. The idea that we wouldn't have to depend on anybody else, that we wouldn't have to ask anybody else for anything, this is our cultural ideal. And Jesus has something to say about it. Jesus has something to say that flies in the face of our common cultural assumptions. Jesus doesn't endorse self-reliance as a goal. Jesus doesn't endorse independence as an aim that we should strive for. In fact, Jesus puts forth a vision of what it means to be fortunate, and Jesus' vision looks almost nothing like what we are accustomed to hearing. And the decision that you've got to make is whether or not Jesus' vision sounds like good news to you or not. 
If you've got a Bible with you, whether on your lap or on an app on your phone, I'd be thrilled for you to join me in the New Testament portion of your Bible. The very first book in that section is called the book of Matthew, and we're going to be in chapter 5. I mentioned last week that I would love for Matthew chapter 5 to be one of those places that your Bible just falls open to, you know, one of those places that you have bookmarked, because this is among the most critical passages of Scripture for a follower of Jesus to be familiar with. In fact, we're going to be working our way, we're going to be working from Matthew chapter 5 throughout this entire preaching series, and you need to know that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 contains the longest recorded teaching from Jesus that we have. We, we refer to these three chapters as Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, and the sermon begins with this compelling introduction about the good life. This first dozen verses that we refer to as the Beatitudes or the blessings. In this section, Jesus begins his sermon by pronouncing blessings on unexpected groups of people. And what we discovered together last week in our, in our introduction is that when Jesus delivered this message, he was surrounded by people who were down and out. He was surrounded by people who were facing serious difficulties in their life. The pressures on them were mounting, and it seemed like their future might be hopeless. He was surrounded by victims of illness and injury and disease and demon possession, all of these people being brought by their desperate families to Jesus in the hopes that Jesus would heal them. So this is who is making up most of the audience when Jesus speaks these words of blessing. There's these crowds of people, commoners and beggars from all over Israel who are all within earshot, and he opens his sermon with this line in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, and he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's our verse for the day. And when you read that verse, you need to know that there are multiple ways to interpret the word blessed. You need to know that even inside the New Testament, there are more than one Greek words that get more than one Greek word that gets translated blessed, but they don't all have the exact same meaning. One of the words that gets translated to mean blessed is a really religious word. It's the kind of word that you would expect preachers to use a lot. It's the kind of word that's used to describe a gift that passes from the divine to humanity. It's the kind of word that describes when one person receives a blessing, whether a verbal blessing or a, a, a gift of a blessing from one person to another. That's the kind of word that that first option is. It says, God has given me a blessing or I bless God with my heart. But then there's a second word that gets translated to mean blessed. There's this other Greek word that really isn't a religious word at all. It's a secular word. It's an everyday word for the people of that time in history, and really it just means fortunate. It means enviable. This is the kind of word that Jesus used. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, he was using this common everyday word. And if we wanted to find an equivalent common English word that would communicate this idea, we would probably choose the word 
lucky. I don't mean lucky as in the result of some random drawing. And I'm not using lucky in connection with any superstition. I'm using lucky the way we use it in conversation with our friends and coworkers. Boy, you're lucky you get to take some days off next week. Boy, lucky you. I'm thrilled that you get to go on that vacation. I'm using lucky in that sense. And Jesus was speaking to this crowd full of people who were needy people. And he says, lucky are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Which leaves us left to ponder, what could Jesus have meant by that? Because we're not usually accustomed to calling poor people lucky. But here's Jesus saying that those who obviously have deep spiritual needs, they're the lucky ones. He's saying that people who need spiritual help and who realize that they need spiritual help, those people are better off because they will be the first people to recognize the gift of God. Being poor in spirit means you recognize the distance between who you are and who you ought to be. Being poor in spirit means you realize just how badly you need divine intervention to lift you out of your own mess. Being poor in spirit means you understand that God is your only hope and you know that without God you're entirely hopeless. Being poor in spirit means you know better than to just try to rely on yourself. Self-reliance doesn't make sense to you anymore. And here's Jesus. He's talking to a bunch of poor people. And these people weren't just poor in spirit. They were poor in most every other way too. They had to depend on other people because they couldn't entirely take care of themselves. You think about how many people were in that audience who had been carried in on stretchers, who had been led in because they couldn't see for themselves. All of the people who were injured and disabled and diseased had been brought to Jesus, and they're hearing these words. By American standards, these were the people who should be pitied because they couldn't make their own way. But Jesus is saying something different. Jesus is saying that people who have learned to accept help and people who have learned to depend on the generosity and the hospitality of others, people who have learned to swallow their pride and admit their neediness, Jesus is saying those people are the most fortunate because the kingdom of heaven can be theirs now, in the present tense. You know, Matthew says Jesus was always talking about this kingdom of heaven that Jesus was constantly describing the reign of God and the fulfillment of God's promises. And Jesus was saying the arrival of the kingdom of heaven is a good thing. It's a miraculous thing because it indicates that God is making things right in the world. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no violence. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no prejudice. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no jealousy. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no pride. And the message of these three chapters, the message of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is that it's possible to live in the kingdom of heaven now. It's possible 
today to live under the reign and the rule and the direction of God. If you keep your focus on Jesus, and Jesus is saying the first people who are going to get in are the ones who realize they need help. In fact, Jesus is saying the poor in spirit, they get a fast pass. A fast pass for the kingdom of heaven. And it's not because they earned it. It's not because they bought it. It's not because they did something to make themselves poor in spirit. Jesus is saying, realizing that you're not self-reliant, that you're not independent, actually sets you up to receive the gift of God in Christ Jesus. When you're not bound and determined to make your own way in this life and to provide for yourself and to chart your own course, when you're not bound and determined to make your own way in this life, then you can receive the gift of God. You know, there's a parable that Jesus tells much later in his ministry. It's recorded in Matthew 22 and Luke 14. And it's, a, it's this odd story about a rich man who prepared a banquet and he sent out invitations ahead of time to all of the neighbors, all of the friends, all the influential people that he wanted to invite to this banquet. And he, made, he went to great lengths to, go to, to create these great preparations for the banquet. He butchered the finest livestock in all of his herds to prepare a great meal. And he had everything ready and all of the place settings were arranged and everything was in its place. And, sudden, and then he sent his servants to go out and find the invited guests, to go to their home with a personal invitation that said, the time has come, the party is now, come on, let's have a feast. But in this story, one by one, all of the guests who had been previously invited came up with excuses for why suddenly they couldn't attend. They were busy managing their own affairs. They were busy tending to their own businesses. And they were, in fact, much too busy to stop and waste precious profit-making time attending a stuffy banquet. And so all the servants come back to the house empty-handed, nobody following them back, and they tell the master about what's happened. And in this parable, the master changes course, sends the servants back out and says, you know what? Go invite anybody you can find. Go invite the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. You'll know exactly where to find them. They're in the same place out on the street where you see them every day. And the servants, they go out and they locate these people who, surprise, surprise, don't have anything else going on. They're not busy. They're not preoccupied. They're available. And here they come. Some of them needed help to get there. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. But these needy, impoverished people came to this banquet in droves. And they were honored to be invited. They were thrilled to be invited, thankful to be included. And the food didn't go to waste because it was enjoyed by the people who weren't busy making their own way. It was enjoyed by the people who weren't preoccupied when the blessing of an invitation knocked on their door. It reminds me of another moment in Jesus' life, a conversation he once had with a rich young man, and this rich man was pious and he was spiritually minded. He wanted to do God's will and he wanted to acquire eternal life, 
but his earthly security was important to him too. And he felt like he had that, that aspect of his life on lock. He had that all tied down. And so when Jesus has this conversation with him, Jesus challenges him to sell his possessions and to give his money to the poor and come and become a full-time disciple, a traveling follower of Jesus. And in that moment, the man had a decision to make. And in the end, he walked away from Jesus sad. It pained him to do it. But he felt like he had to because he couldn't give up the self-sufficiency that he had worked so hard to build. And there was Jesus, surrounded by the disciples who had, in fact, walked away from their livelihoods to follow him. And Jesus says to them, Boy, it's hard. It's really hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, with God's intervention, it's not impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, but boy, it's difficult. It sure is hard. And it's not God has something against rich people. The problem is that rich people have a hard time receiving the invitation. The reason it's hard for rich people to enter into the kingdom of heaven is because rich people aren't used to having to ask for help. It's because rich people want to be able to do for themselves. They want to pay their own way. And whether you're rich in money or rich in confidence or rich in good deeds, it's hard to reach out a hand to receive free help when you're consumed with trying to help yourself. But Jesus knew something that we don't. Jesus knew something that his audience didn't know. Jesus knew that God takes great delight in those who realize how desperately they need help. This puts a smile on God's face. There is such a thing as spiritual pride, and spiritual pride grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit of God. Wherever there are people who think that they're getting along pretty well on their own, wherever you find people who can only think of a few things that they need God's help with, there won't be much room or much need for God to do big things in that kind of a community which is why Jesus said what he said in our verse of the day. It's the spiritually inadequate, the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, the spiritually desperate. Those are the lucky ones. Those are the fortunate ones because they've got all kinds of room for God to show up and intervene in their life. The poor in spirit that Jesus referred to, these are the people who they've got room in their schedule. They've got room in their plans for God to show up. They're the people who understand that faith is not just a one-time transaction, that it's more than just punching a ticket to heaven that saves you a seat. They're the ones who understand that faith is about a daily dependence on God's provision and God's direction and God's strength. When you're poor in spirit, you know what a mess life would be if you held on to the steering wheel. 
And so God's offer to drive comes as a great relief. You've probably never heard the story of a man named William Post. He went by the nickname Bud. For most of his life, Bud's story was not a story that many people would have said was worth telling. He was born in 1939 in Pennsylvania. He had a hard life. He was sent to live in an orphanage at age eight after his mother passed away. And once he reached adulthood, he moved from one odd job to the next for the next 30 or 40 years. He never owned a home, never owned a car. Money was always tight. He spent a little bit of time in jail for writing hot checks because money was always a problem for Bud. And then one day, Bud decided in a moment of hopelessness to purchase a lottery ticket. He was barely scraping by. He was living on disability payments. And at that moment, he had $2.46 in his bank account. And he felt like he had nothing to lose. And as luck would have it, Bud won the Pennsylvania lottery. A jackpot of over $16 million in 1988 that would be equivalent to about $41 million in today's money. And most people would look at a story like that and look at a man like that and consider him to be incredibly lucky. But for Bud, things didn't turn out the way he imagined. After his big win, he chose to receive his winnings in annual payments for the next 26 years. Every year he would be paid $497,000. But within two months of collecting his first installment, he had spent over 60% of the money. And three months after that, Bud was half a million dollars in debt. Thanks, among other, to, among other things, a restaurant that he had leased for his sister and his brother to operate, a used car lot that he'd purchased for another brother, and a twin-engine jet airplane that he'd bought for himself, even though he wasn't a pilot and he didn't have anybody to fly it. A year, from, a year from then, debt was not his only problem. He became estranged from his siblings. A county court ordered him to stay away from his wife after he had allegedly fired a rifle at her vehicle. He was a millionaire who was losing friends and alienating people while he was accruing a mountain of debt. And then one of his former landlords sued him for a portion of the winnings to cover some of his prior debts. And by that time, Bud was finished. The judge ruled that she was entitled to a third of his lottery winnings. And when Bud couldn't bring together enough money at one time to pay, the judge ordered that all further payments of his winnings be frozen until the dispute between them was settled. Bud was desperate for cash. And so he sold his Pennsylvania mansion in 1996 for just $65,000 and he auctioned off the remaining payments of his winnings. And with a little over two and a half million dollars remaining, he hoped that people would finally leave him alone, but he continued to create more problems for himself and he squandered the remaining money on houses and vehicles and creature comforts. And by 1998, 10 years after winning $16.2 million in the lottery, Bud Post found himself on food stamps and surviving on $450 a month disability payments. And near the end of his life, 
before he died in 2006, Bud Post said, I was a lot happier when I was broke. I was a lot happier when I had nothing. His story could have been so much different. Most people would look at that big lottery win and they'd say, well, he had it made, but the truth is that Bud's life didn't have room for that kind of gift. Bud's life didn't have room for that kind of money, and when the money showed up, he wasn't ready for it. And that's the kind of challenge that faces you and me. Because here we are, and Jesus shows up, and the kingdom of heaven is arriving, and it's an inexplicable gift, a priceless gift, the gift of God's intervention and direction and provision in our lives. God is showing up and saying, if you will seek me first, if you will pursue my priorities, I'll make sure you have what you need. God is saying, if you will chase after what's important to me, I'll include you in my story. Jesus is showing up. The kingdom of heaven is breaking into our world, and it's for our sake so that we can be included, so that we can be invited. And Jesus is saying, if you're spiritually broke, this is going to sound like really good news to you. If you're spiritually destitute, if you recognize your need, if you recognize how humble your circumstances and your situation really is, then the arrival of the kingdom of heaven and the good news of God is going to be great news for you. It shows up for all of us. It's great news. We're all so fortunate because the kingdom of God has arrived. But at the end of the day, only a few will have room for it. Only a few will be ready to respond. Only the ones who aren't busy trying to build their life on their own. And so I have a question for you this morning. A question for all of us. And the question that we've got to ask ourselves is, where do I need God right now? Where are the parts? What do, what do I need from God right now? Maybe for you the question is, what do I still need from God right now? I know. I know there's lots of us who made a decision about being a follower of Jesus. We trusted ourselves to Jesus for salvation decades ago. What do you still need from God? What do I need from God right now? As I look at my life and I think about all of the pursuits of my life, what do I need from God right now? I want to give you this hint that the poor in spirit have a really long list. Those who recognize reality for what it is, those who have clear-eyed view of spiritual reality 
have a really long list of the things that we need from God. But there are some people who don't even understand the question. What do I need from God? I've got, I've got my assurance of heaven. What else, what else is there? That list is too short. And the good news for us is that Jesus didn't deliver these blessings saying, if you're one of the lucky ones who happens to be poor in spirit, then I've got good news for you. That's not what Jesus' tone sounded like. That was not Jesus' approach. Jesus was saying, if you'll follow me, I'll help you get a better grasp on reality. If you obey and follow and listen to my voice, if you follow my lead, I'll help you see things for how they really are. I'll help you realize your spiritual need and God's great gift. Your situation is not hopeless. The decision you have to make is, will I make room for God? Will I make room for God in my life?